Welcome to the New Books Network. One, hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Artists and Authors podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say that we have Charlotte Christensen on the show, and she is a a professor of physics at Grinnell College, and I'm very interested to talk to her because I read a lot of physics books. I'm not sure how much I understand of them, but I'm hoping that she'll be able to clarify some things uh, for you and for me. Uh, Charlotte, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, Well, as you said, I am a professor, uh, associate professor at Grinnell College in the physics department. So I'm technically a physicist, but I actually consider myself more of an astronomer. Um, My PhD is in astronomy and from the University of Washington. And I arrived at Grinnell College um, about eight years ago after a postdoc at the University of Arizona. And now I am here at Grinnell. I'm just getting off my sabbatical following tenure, which has been a true delight. And well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to getting back in the classroom in the fall. That's great. I'm sure the people at Grinnell will be happy to have you back. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your research focus? What exactly you do? Sure. So broadly, I'm interested in how galaxies form and how galaxies evolve. So when we look at the galaxies in the universe, we see that there's this huge diversity of galaxies. Some of them are huge, um, like these giant elliptical galaxies, which can be uh, maybe a thousand times the mass of the Milky Way. And some of them are really tiny. Um, These are known as dwarf galaxies. And um, you might be familiar with, say, the large Magellanic Cloud or the small Magellanic Cloud which are two dwarf galaxies. I wish I could say I was familiar with that. but (laughs) Well, if you lived in the Southern Hemisphere, you would be because you can actually see them there. But they're two um, small galaxies that orbit the Milky Way just the way that the Earth orbits the Sun. And they have um, around uh, 1% to uh, a tenth of 1% the mass of the Milky Way. So what I'm specifically interested in are these really teeny galaxies. And I want to know um, why they act the way they do. One thing we notice is that the small galaxies that orbit the Milky Way look really different than small galaxies which are, um, say, isolated, far from any more massive galaxy. So we call those isolated galaxies or field galaxies in comparison to the satellite galaxies. And we see that galaxies that are isolated tend to still be forming stars, but satellite galaxies in the Milky Way usually aren't. And one of the questions I'm interested in at the moment is why this happens and what exactly shuts off the star formation. So I did all this work using computers. I am not an observer. I never go out and look through a telescope for my own research. (laughs) Uh, I I read other people's research that uses telescope data, and I try and incorporate that into my own work. But what I do is I simulate how galaxies form. So I um, simulate a box of the universe. I include gravity and um, things about the gas, such as the density and the temperature, uh, and things about how star formation happens and what happens when stars die in supernova. And all of that physics goes into into the simulation, and I basically see what happens and try and use that to help us interpret what's actually happening in the universe. So uh, let's let's take a, a step back, deep back into time. Um, 
and work toward the simulations. So the uh, universe, if I'm not incorrect, is about 14 billion years old. That's is that right? Yep. Something like that, yeah. And at that point, this thing, the Big Bang, happened, and then there was something called expansion. Yeah, is that what it's called? Um, yeah, we talked about the expansion of the universe. Yeah. So the the one thing I don't really understand, and this is a kind of a digression that I've always wanted to ask an astronomer, is the expansion happened very quickly. Is that right? I mean, it was like there was nothing, and then there was something, and. And did things move faster than the speed of light at that time? I mean, how did that happen? <laughs> so I think what you're... Are these naive and dumb questions? They may be. I don't know. No, these are great questions. I think what you're referring to is the inflationary period. Inflationary period. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. See, I had the terminology wrong. Yes, the inflationary period. Right. So when we think about the history of the universe, um, the whole universe is getting bigger, but it's been getting bigger at different rates, depending on when this is. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. Okay. So right after the Big Bang, um, the universe expanded at an exponential rate uh, very, very rapidly during this period called inflation. And then it sort of stabilized for a while and kind of coasted along, still expanding, but at a, um, at a significantly slower rate. Um, and now what's happening is the, the rate of expansion of the universe is actually increasing again. It's still not anywhere near as rapid as it was uh -oh. during the inflationary period. But there's still, this is a mystery. Um, this is, physicists can't explain why the universe would start to speed up. Um, and one, huh. this is why physicists refer to dark energy. Dark energy is whatever it is that yeah. is causing this accelerating expansion. So there are all, yeah. there are all these uh, different periods. Um, so uh, we, we can't, we, we don't know why the um, rate of expansion is increasing. Do we know why the inflationary period slowed down? Well, I, there are there are theories there. I bet um, there are. <laughs> and it's honestly not my field. So I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm not defer. going to do all of those. Yeah, I'll defer yeah. to people who study right. more, more closely. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a very, that's a, that's a very good answer. The, so uh, at some point, uh, gravity becomes involved. And is this how galaxies are formed? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, in the very unit early universe had pockets that were higher density and pockets that were lower density. I yeah. actually think this getting back to inflation, that those pockets of higher and lower density are because of actually quantum fluctuations in the initial density oh of the universe that then got expanded out to huge scales, um, during inflation. But regardless, um, if we think about the time just before galaxies started to form, when the universe was um, starting to cool down, the areas that were higher density would collect more mass into them because of gravity, and the areas that were lower density would lose mass. So this is this is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And yeah. Over time, the areas where there is higher density continue to collect more and more mass as gas cools down, um, and as gas cools into what we call these regions of higher density, mostly driven by um, dark matter, actually, um, that gas can form stars, and that's how the first galaxies formed. And, the, and these are largely gravitational processes by which these these 
areas of high density create kind of gravity wells, and then things flow into them in an ever increasing rate. That's exactly is that right? right. And, that, and stars come out of this process as well. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So stars happen when the gas reaches sufficiently high density. Um, and that only happens because gravity is driving all that gas in together. Uh-huh. And then once you have stars, then you get the production of what we call elements. Is that right? Sure. So the initial universe was primarily, um, in terms of its regular matter, uh, what we would call baryonic matter, was hydrogen and helium with really trace elements of lithium. But obviously, you and I and basically everything we interact with has lots of other elements in it, like, for instance, carbon and oxygen. Um, and those elements are produced by stars either during the star's lifetime or when a star dies in a supernova. Mm-hmm. So where, where do we get... So I, I understand the inflationary period and I understand the expansion and then slowing down and then re-expansion, which is going on now and is inexplicable. How do we get galaxies? Which are What are galaxies? <laughs> How about that? What's a galaxy? <laughs> like many things in astronomy, um, the definitions get more complex the more you think about it. Um, But I would say at the most basic level, a galaxy is something that um, a region of dark matter, which is all gravitationally bound together, along with some stars in there. Um, Dark matter, to back up a little bit, dark matter is matter that light doesn't interact with. So that means that This matter doesn't absorb light, and it also doesn't reflect light. And for that reason, astronomers can't see it using, say, photons detected through a telescope. But we can see its gravitational influence on other matter. And we see that the galaxies primarily consist of dark matter. Um, Dark matter might be something like, oh, 90% the mass of a typical galaxy. And then the rest of that galaxy um, is stars and gas. <laughs> Not all dark matter um, halos or collections of dark matter actually contain stars. So those are things that we don't consider galaxies, but they do exist out there. And these are just big gravitational wells, and we know they're there because... I would say they... they- there's small gravitational wells. Okay. Um, so all right. on the order, well, it's all relative. So think uh, about, say, 100,000 times the mass of the sun. Yeah, and, that's uh, small. And we theorize wow. they're there. We haven't actually detected yeah. these yet. Right. So once you have a galaxy, I mean, we're pretty familiar with uh, pictures of galaxies. I think they're especially called like spiral galaxies. I think the Milky Way is one, right? It looks like a spiral. That's right. But not all galaxies are spiral galaxies. That's is that right? right? Yeah. So the Milky- and why are some why are some spiraling and some aren't? Do we know that? So this gets at the heart of my research. Uh, Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So many galaxies are spiral galaxies. And these are galaxies which are basically disc-shaped, or the gas in the stars is in a disc, kind of like a Frisbee. Um, And it's all rotating around together, and the rotation leads to the creation of these spiral arms. Um, But other galaxies, say more massive galaxies, might be more egg-shaped or elliptical, and actually less massive galaxies as well. And... There's a big question about how galaxies transition between these different types. Um, One 
one thing that's probably very important to this is collisions between galaxies. Collisions between two spiral galaxies is one good way to form an elliptical galaxies or an elliptical galaxy. Um, and repeated collisions are probably even better. At the really low mass end, where I'm interested in, um, it might be that some of these galaxies never form a disk at all. They're just always sort of spherical or elliptical shape. Um, or there might be something else happening with the dynamics. Well, why do spiral galaxies spin at all? So this What's is... up with that? <laughs> Um, so if I say the words conservation of angular momenta, uh, yep, I get that. Yeah, hopefully that won't scare anybody off, and might even bring back recollections of say an intro physics course. So this idea is that if any spin that an object has is conserved, so long as there's no external force stopping or that spin, um, and the rate at which something spins increases as that object gets smaller. So this is the classic um, ice skater who starts the off. The ice skater. I was thinking about the ice skater, yes. Yep, throws the arms <laughs> in and the spin increases. Galaxies work the same way. We think in the early universe, all that gas out there, just because of random fluctuations, had a little bit of initial spin to it. It was very, very slow. But as that gas collapsed down into these gravitational wells, uh, that's been increased. And now is, is what causes the galaxies that formed out of it to rotate. So this is a bit of an aside, but the dwarf galaxies that you studied, do they spin? They do. Yes, they spin as well, um, but not necessarily as uniformly as a disk galaxy. Um, they, their stars, rather than all rotating together in a single plane, um, might look more like a, a cloud of bees or something all, all yeah. orbiting together. Yeah, I got it. And you mentioned that galaxies collide. If one galaxy is bigger than another and they're in the reasonable proximity, then we can predict that the big one will eat the small one. Is that right? And is that going on? Yeah. So um, we talk about galactic cannibalism. Actually, we use those. <laughs> where a big galaxy eats a smaller galaxy. Um, how these collisions look and what the end result is it depends a lot on the initial state of these galaxies, how they are moving in relationship to each other, what their sizes are in relationship to each other. Sometimes galaxies of fairly equal mass collide. And we, we call this a major merger. And we think this is what's going to happen between the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I have something to look forward to. Well, here's a question for you. And again, that this will betray my lack of knowledge about physics. When I take two things and throw them together, you do end up with one thing, but a lot of stuff gets spit out as well. Mm -hmm. Does this happen with galaxies? It's like somebody just gets ejected as a result of the force of bringing them together. We think so, that some stuff could get ejected. The vast majority of material is going to end up in this final conglomerate galaxy, um, but there could be stars that end up outside the, the galaxy Right, a poor lonely star wandering without a galaxy. Very much so. Well, it will find another galaxy to eat it eventually, right? Uh, probably not. And this is getting back oh, to wow. the expansion of the universe. Because the universe is getting bigger, galaxies in general, though not in all cases, are getting farther apart. 
I, I have to ask this question, I, and I don't. I, I I confess this perplexes me. Gravity is a very strong force, and and so, and so is it the case that well, I don't even know how to say it. It would seem that the universe would collapse back on itself at some moment, wouldn't it? Yes, this is this is one of the big mysteries at the heart of cosmology. Is we would think that a universe filled with matter, all that matter would bring it back together, would cause it to collapse. Yeah. Um, and that's just why we have to hypothesize dark energy. We need something else which causes it to keep on moving apart and keep on moving apart at a faster speed. So dark energy, I, I, it's necessary for the theory, and a critic might say it's a fudge. Do you have any opinion on that? Um, I think I would say that we've discovered a mystery. And yeah, we definitely have. Yeah. We know it has to exist. It's not a, not a fudge to make yeah. our results work out so much as a sign that um, we need to learn something new. Yeah, right. I mean, it's inferred by the all, all the other more or less demonstrated facts about the universe. So it's a good, it's a good inference that it's there. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the way that you do research, because as you said, this is fascinating to me. You don't actually do, do observation yourself. You rely on other people's observations uh, and you use um, computer models. And one of the things I was reading about your research is that well, I'm a historian. And one of the problems with history is you can't go back and run tests. <laughs> it happened and that's it. You can't go rerun the French Revolution adjusting variables to see if it turns out differently. So you have to do something else. And it seems to me there's kind of an analogy between that example and what you do. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's very much correct. Um, so we can't rerun our universe. Um, and we also can't go back and say, examine a galaxy directly from the past, the way you, you can't go back and talk with a soldier from the French Revolution. Yeah. Um, what we can do in astronomy is we can see light from more distant galaxies, which was produced by those galaxies in the past. Um, but we can't watch a single galaxy evolve over time even. So what simulations let us do is they let us play with toy universes where we can change the physics and we can examine a single galaxy over its entire history and we can get really into the nitty gritty of that single galaxy, um, information that one would not be able to easily get from observations. The only problem is we have to prove that our simulations are realistic in order to make claims yeah. from them. Yeah. The so the reason you can't watch a, a galaxy evolve is because the time spans are too long. Is that correct? That's right. Galaxies evolve over billions of years. Right. That's a problem. Um, and then in the in the construction of because I'm trying to think about like as a historian, I could create a simulation of the French Revolution and go adjust variables. I'm sure someone is doing this in some way. Some historical sociologist has done this already. Um, and they change various things. And then you get count what we call in history counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. This didn't happen, but could have. Mm -hmm. um, and you do this by adjusting variables. What variables are involved in your research? How, what are the inputs that, that you tinker with in order to determine whether you have the proper model of a galaxy? Right. So some of the things that are 
very important and the models have to do with um, descriptions of how stars form and also the descriptions of how energy from supernova um, is transmitted back to the back to the galaxy. Um, some of my previous work had to do with looking at models of the gas that stars are formed out of, so specifically molecular hydrogen, um, and trying to better describe that. Uh, my current research, I don't so much change the physical models. We have a set of physical models that we think are pretty good, but instead I look at galaxies that are formed in different environments. Um, so I compare uh, similar galaxies that one might be close to something like the Milky Way and one might be very far from it. And I see how those differ. Well, this is also, there's also another analogy from my discipline here is that the French Revolution wasn't the only revolution. You can compare it to other revolutions and people have done this. So this is essentially, I don't know, essentially that might be the wrong word. So this is what you do. You take different galaxies in different places, in different environments, and you compare them. Is that right? That's exactly right. And um, so does this then work toward a kind of general theory of galaxy formation? Or is it specifically about dwarf galaxies? So my work is specifically on these low mass galaxies. Um, but my hope is that the information we get from them will be applicable um, with some modification to larger larger mass galaxies too. It's just mm -hmm. before, um, mm -hmm. low mass galaxies seem to have very specific formation processes. And part of that is because they are so low mass, they're really sensitive to anything happening around them. Um, their gravitational hold is not very strong. So something like the presence of a more massive galaxy or a close encounter with another low mass galaxy can really, really change them. Mm -hmm. and, and how big is the data set here uh, in terms of dwarf? I'm trying to think how many revolutions have there been? <laughs> A lot. Right. <laughs> how many? How many? Uh, how many dwarf galaxies are there? To, well, two questions. One is, how many do we know there are, and how many of them have been studied to the extent that you can use data derived from that uh, observation? Yes. Um, so, numbers of dwarf galaxies around the Milky Way, I think are on the order of 60 or so right now. I guess I should say- That's that pretty reasonable. That's, you can deal with that. <laughs> yeah, and recently these surveys have gotten um, sensitive enough. They can see some of these more massive satellite galaxies around um, more distant spiral galaxies. And that's a fairly recent development. One thing that we don't- These are just the ones around the Milky Way, 60. Um, let's say in the local group near Andromeda and the Milky yeah. Way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And But we would imagine that there are a lot more out there somewhere. Yes. Yeah. And one thing we don't have much data on are uh, low mass galaxies that are really isolated because they'd have to be far away from us. And these things, because they're low mass, are inherently dim and hard to observe. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the observation part of it, the actual provision of the data itself. How do you observe a dwarf galaxy? What are the instruments used to do it, and what are they measuring? Um, so again, I don't, I don't observe these, but right. I was just asking, just yeah. This, yeah. But these, but so an astronomer 
Um, I mean, ideally, if they got their proposal accepted, they would use something like the Hubble Space Telescope or the or JWST. Mm-hmm. Um, those can give really great information. Um, most of these observations are done in done in optical wavelengths, so or um, the visible wavelengths, the type of light that you and I can see with our eyes. Yeah. Um, maybe some work is done in the infrared as well, and and mm-hmm. people use other other parts of the spectrum, but those are those are most important because primarily we're looking at the stars in these galaxies since they don't tend mm-hmm. to have a ton of gas. Um, if an astronomer does want to look at the gas in um, in low mass galaxies, then they might use a radio telescope, um, for instance, ALMA um, or the VLA, the Very Large Array, something like that, and then they'd be looking at um, emission from the gas. So one popular thing to look at would be uh, it's called a 21 centimeter line, and it's when a hydrogen atom switches from having the spin of the nucleus aligned with the spin of the electron to being anti-aligned. Um, so that was some physics jargon there, but the main That's point okay. is that hydrogen gas can emit this light and that we would see that using a radio telescope. Mm-hmm. And so at, are the observations fine enough for you to develop a kind of typology of dwarf this is what you would do in history is you would you would look at all the all, all the revolutions and you'd get all the data you could about them and then you'd develop a little typology of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we might characterize um, these galaxies based off of their mass. We might characterize them by the presence of gas or lack of gas. Um, we characterize them by the rate at which they are currently forming stars or if they're not forming stars. Um, and then we might, we talked about the structure. Uh, we might look at the structure. So is the, um, are these things more elliptical or are they more disc-like? Mm-hmm. So this, this is sort of an unfair question because you've already said this is not an experimental science in the sense of chemistry, let's say. Neither is history, by the way. It is not an experimental science. But we try to give rational explanations for what goes on. How do you know whether your explanation or model is better than another one absent the possibility of a test? Yeah. I mean, this this is one of the difficult things about astronomy. Um, and history. And, and history and, and many other <laughs> observational sciences. Yeah. Right. So I think the best thing to do is to make a model based off of the current data set and then make a prediction from that and then get more data and see if the unknown data matches with that prediction. I see. So, so actually then the predictions that you make using the model can be verified or falsified using new data that comes from the galaxy. That is the goal. Yeah. So for instance, with the launch of JWST, James Webb Space Telescope, um, that's going to allow us to see all sorts of galaxies that haven't yet been studied. And that's going to hopefully verify, or I guess, truly falsify or not falsify. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to get into that whole debate, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah. right. Yeah, developed. Well, this reminds me much more of what economists do, because they produce models as well. And they say, if you raise the interest rate, then this will happen. 
and then we see if it happens or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they go back and adjust the model, ever tinkering with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the course of your research, was there anything that really surprised you? Was there anything that was like, oh my God, look at that. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, and I'm trying to think the last time I was really surprised. Um, so I'd say one result that I'm pretty fascinated with at the moment, um, and that was somewhat, that was unexpected, is again, comparing these satellite galaxies to the isolated galaxies. Um, I find that the isolated galaxies just have a slightly lower stellar mass than the satellite galaxies do. And this is counterintuitive because we've talked about how a satellite galaxy yeah, explain. Yeah, yeah. next to a Milky Way, um, it's going to stop forming stars. So why would it have a lower, why would this satellite mass galaxy that stopped forming stars have a higher stellar mass than the isolated galaxy, which is still forming stars. And that was, yeah, yeah it's counterintuitive. And that's the puzzle I'm it is. going with at the moment. Um, I think it gets down to the timelines over which these things form, that the satellite galaxies are forming earlier on than the isolated ones. And that might be the key to this mystery. I love it when the data is initially counterintuitive that way. You have to rethink the initial well, assumptions. Well, yeah, that that's the fun of it, is when you find something unexpected and inexplicable given what you know. And that, then that, that focuses your attention, at least it does in my own research, when I find something that just doesn't look quite right. And then you want to investigate further. Um, into that. So is that what you're working on now? Yeah, this question? that is one of the projects I have going. I've got a few separate ones, um, but that's what I was working on earlier today and what I will probably work really? on wow. this afternoon. Well, that's great. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time uh, and I want to thank you very much for being on the show. This has been fascinating for me as a lay person. You're very good at explaining this stuff, by the way. I actually, I feel like I learned a lot. Your students are very lucky. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm at Cornell because I like explaining this stuff. It's a lot of fun to me. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Charlotte Christensen, uh, uh, who is a, a physicist, actually an astronomer at Grinnell College. Um, and I'm Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network and the host of Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. Charlotte, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.